Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. We got it? All right. Good morning, everyone. There was once a pastor in a small town who was well known for his eloquence and his passion in preaching the gospel. And the end of every sermon, he said, I don't know about you, but right after this, I'm going out there and I'm going to preach the good news to the poor and I'm going to help the needy. And what are you doing for Jesus? The truth was, every single Sunday, his golf clubs were already in the back of the car. He drove to the next town over and he played, he played nine holes to unwind. This was every Sunday this guy was doing this. Passionate preaching, calls to action, justice, spread the gospel, go out for a nice round, which hopefully I'm going to be doing tomorrow at Winter Park. Um, this story's not about me, okay? I'm not this guy. So eventually, a couple angels visit this church and they realize what this guy's doing, this kind of like blatant hypocrisy of the way he's like riling up his congregation and then he's going off and not doing at all what he said he was going to do. So they go to the Almighty, who hadn't been paying much attention to this church in the first place, and said, Yahweh, you've got to come. You've got to see what this guy's doing. So one Sunday, Yahweh comes down from heaven. He kind of slips in the back unseen. He sits in the back row, you know, maybe somewhere over there where charity is. And he kind of watches, and he's listening to the sermon. The guy, just at the end, he says, I don't know about you, but after this, I'm going out, and I'm going to go preach the good news to the, to the poor, and I'm going to, like, help the needy and all of this. And then Yahweh watches him walk off stage, get into his car, head to the next town, and he's going to play some golf. He says, okay, all right, fellas, I'm going to do something about it. So these two angels, they're so excited. Oh, my gosh, this is going to be great. We're going to see the fire and the brimstone, and we're going to see the Old Testament version of God come back out, you know, whenever somebody's, like, defiling, de- like, you know, defiling his name. So, pastor gets to hole number one, he lines up, you know, he gets his, he's got a great stance and everything, and he kind of, he sees where he's headed, he takes his swing, hole in one, he's, he's flabbergasted, it's never happened in his entire career, if you know anything about golf, you know that to play golf is to be terrible, okay, (laughs) so he's just kind of, he's surprised, but the angels who are hiding behind a bush, they're also kind of surprised, like, okay, what is the Lord up to? So he goes up, and, and, and it's, it's hole number two, and he goes, and he, he, he lines up, he takes a swing, poof, shoo, gets another one, gets another hole in one. He's two for two. This never happens. He, he just, he can't understand what's going on. So he goes, and he gets to hole number three, which is like a par five, which is like, you know, 456 yards. It's a, it's a strike. So he just lines up. Poof, he hits it, just cuts way off to the left, bounces off a tree, skips across a pond, shoot, third hole, hole in one. Unbelievable. Never happened in the history of ever. And this happens for all 18 holes. Every single hole, he gets a hole in one. He just cannot believe what's happening. It seems like this, this miraculous moment. And he just leaves, just absolutely incredulous as what's just happened. He gets in his car and drives home. And the angels come to Yahweh and they're like, what are you doing? This guy is like a blatant hypocrite. He's, he's saying one thing and he's going out and doing another. And you just gave him the perfect game of golf. And he says, yeah, but who's he going to tell? Church jokes. This is what we're going to be exploring today, the relationship between what we say we believe and how we actually live it out. And, that, and there's a lot of different places I could have gone with this passage because it's very, very dense. It's looking at three spiritual practices, three religious practices, giving, praying, and fasting. And we could have 
you know, kind of dove into each of those and explored the depths of what they really mean and what they don't mean. And there's all sorts of things. We, we had a really great uh, gathering like a year ago, just kind of around the Lord's Prayer, picking that apart. Uh, but this is really what I felt was most important for us in the spirit of the vision that we have for this year, that allegiance is at least, at least as much about what we do as what we say we believe. And we're, what we're doing this year is we're looking at that idea of faith, the word faith, to have faith in Jesus as allegiance, which means this embodied, full self, getting behind Jesus as our king. It is active. It engages our minds, our hearts, our bodies, our spirit. Every part of who we are is gathered up behind Jesus to, to follow him wherever he might lead us. And it's important that we begin to look at the, either the connection or the disconnection between the things that we say that we believe and how we live our lives. Now where we're at in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is a lot of Jesus kind of having this same pattern. He says, you have heard it said this, but I'm telling you this. And what Jesus is doing is he's reimagining the law, the Torah, the kind of foundation of Jewish life. Remember that all of the people listening to Jesus at this moment are all Jews. And so they're very familiar with the Old Testament, with the Torah, the, the first covenant that God made with his people. And what we see in this is that everything that Jesus is telling us in these chapters is a practice-based faith. Because our faith, you and I, as Christians, little Christs, this is what Christian means, we live a practice-based faith. Christianity is not an ideology. Christianity is not a set of abstract ideas that we just sign off on. Our church is not a website that has, okay, in order to be part of City Beautiful, you've got to believe the following 95 theses, sign your, line, your name on the dotted line, and then you're going to get into heaven when you die. But a lot of us have been raised in a Christianity that is so much about what we believe that it does not honestly examine how we live that out. And so my premise today, without diminishing the place of belief, because I think belief is tremendously important, is to say our faith is at least as much about what we do. And one of the things that I was so caught, and maybe you were as well when, when, when you were hearing this scripture read, is that Jesus starts off talking about giving, praying, fasting. He says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And that caught me this week especially, as I've been thinking about this embodied allegiance to Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't say, if you give, Maybe if you've got some spare time and you want to throw up a prayer to the Almighty. And then the one that I think was most convicting to me was, if you want to fast, which is to create space for God to speak. Because there's a personal responsibility element to our faith. And when Jesus says, when you, that should make us sit up in our seats. That should be a little bit of a cause for concern. Is Jesus giving us suggestions of what to do to live a less miserable life than the day before? Is Jesus just giving us advice? Or is Jesus commanding us to something? You see, we don't like that word, command. We don't like the word, obedience. 
And I think a lot of times in the modern era, as we continually conform Jesus to our cultural expectations of what we need him to be, we have a Jesus that gives us lots of advice, gives us some pointers on how to live a better life, but we become very uncomfortable when we actually listen to him and we see the audacity of Jesus to command us to do things because he's infringing upon our freedom. Are we preaching yet? So what is Jesus doing here when he commands us, when he says, when you, not if you? And so I want to look very briefly at what these three commands are, and then I want to dig a little bit deeper into the supporting cast of this, if you will, when Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites and do not be like the pagans. So I think the core of what Jesus is doing, especially in, we have this backdrop of Torah, of the law, and the, the word for law in Hebrew is halakha, and it means the path that you walk. So God is saying in the law, he's not saying in order to be a good Jewish boy or girl, you've got to behave and you've got to follow the rules. He's saying, no, if you want to know who I am and you want to know who I'm calling you to be, I want you to live this way. That's what's really happening there. Jesus is taking that idea, but he's bringing it into um, a new covenant. And I think that when we practice living Jesus's way, we enter into the heart of the Father. When we, when we are obedient, when we do what Jesus is telling us to do, especially when we don't feel like it, especially when it doesn't make sense or it infringes upon our freedoms or it makes us uncomfortable or we don't have all the facts, when we continue to, to follow Jesus and do what he's calling us to do, that's when it actually begins to form us. And first of all, we recognize something radical about the heart of Father God in what Jesus is commanding us to do. And secondly, that revelation of the heart of the Father reflects better Back and shows us who we truly are as his beloved. But it also gives us a template for what we're called to do, our vocation. There is something about this faith that makes us want to do stuff. And we've been stuck for centuries in this false argument between faith or works. Are we saved by our faith, which is just saying, Jesus died for your sins, so you go to heaven and check, okay, I'm good, or is it works? Oh, I've got to pay the penance and I've got to do the indulgences and maybe I can earn my place into God's kingdom. It's neither of those things because faith and works are integrated. They are actually one in the same. Now, one of the, the, the phrases that we saw last week as Justin was talking to us about love of enemies, at the end it says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's a, it, again, it's something really shocking. Like, we're, we're to be like God? And it's like, yeah, we are, because guess what? We're his kids. We, we have his DNA, but we don't fully realize that. We don't own what it means to be the children of God, to be made in his image. And so when we begin to practice these practices, it's through doing that we have this new revelation of what God is really like that gives us a template for who we are to become. That if Jesus is, is God fully revealed, he's also humanity fully revealed. So we look at Jesus and go, ah, yes, this is what it looks like when God finishes what he started in us through grace. And so these three uh, commands that Jesus gives us, number one, faithfully giving allows the generosity of God to flow through us. To faithfully give, we are recognizing by faith that God is a generous God. He does not hold back from his creation. But guess who does? You and me. Because we live in a world that says there isn't enough to go around. And my first job is to take care of myself and my own and to get ahead, whatever that looks like. But because we live in a consumerist society, what we define as enough, and dad's gonna be talking about this next week, my dad, just not, you know, <laughs> Father Robin. 
Um, when we says do not worry and do not store up is this idea of what are we talking about when we think of enough because that's always a sliding scale in our culture, right? Enough is always just about three steps ahead of wherever you're at. So you get the promotion, but then that's not really enough. You get married, but eh, that wasn't really enough, you know? Like, you, you get healthcare, oh, that wasn't really it. And we keep gobbling up because we've been told that we are consumers at the core. And we're miserly. We are miserly. We don't believe there's enough to go around. We believe that scarcity of resources in God's good earth. And so we fight over them. You realize all wars and human discourse are based upon the fact that we believe there's not enough to go around. And so to faithfully practice giving, which in Jesus' time meant giving to your local faith community and it meant giving to the poor. It means both of those things. And we don't privilege one over the other. It's an active rebellion against consumerism. Did you know that? That giving is a rebellion against the empirical notion of consumerism to say, no, I'm taking hold of the American dollar and I'm washing it through the cross and I'm turning it into something for the kingdom. Amen. That's right. That's what we're talking about. I've told this story before, but several years ago, we were doing a fundraiser at my church in Nashville. We were getting ready to go on a mission trip and people donated stuff and then we were selling off other people's crap to make money. It's a great way to do things. And we're set up in this parking lot and, you know, I'm just kind of watching and the students I'm in ministry school, they're integrating with some people and I watch this SUV drive by and it drives by us, it gets up about a block and it stops and it turns around and this guy pulls like right into the parking lot, right in front of where we are and he just yells out his window, he goes, who's in charge? And I'm like, oh crap. Over here, it's me. And he, see, so he marches up to me, and he reaches out and he hands me a check for $5,000. He goes, here, the Lord told me to give this to you. And he gets back in his car and he drives off. And I, it was so funny. It wasn't bringing him joy. He wasn't Marie Kondoing this thing about getting rid of $5,000. He did not want to do that. But he was being obedient to do what the Lord was calling him to do. And I love that. I think that's what generosity is. It is this active rebellion against consumerism to believe that the kingdom operates on generosity because God is a generous God. Now, secondly, faithfully praying transforms our expectations and outlook on the world to echo God's desires. If we are praying correctly, and people say, there's no wrong way to pray, and I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. But faithfully praying... What it does is it, it transforms our expectations. So when you look at, when Jesus says, this is how you pray, which by the way, that's a liturgical prayer, right? Jesus isn't saying, when you pray, eh, just kind of cast your anxieties into the ether and maybe God will hear you, maybe you won't. I don't know, I don't know how it works. Which is, whatever's on your heart, he says, no, this is how you should pray, which is why the Lord's Prayer is kind of at the center of our prayer practices. But we begin by saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now what happens when we begin to pray like that? It actually changes our will and what we would like to see because a lot of times, if we're honest, our prayers are about our earthly realities being put into to heaven. God, here's the things that I want. This is what I want out of life. Could you make those happen for me? And God is kind of a, a giant ATM in the sky that actually reinforces this consumerist mentality that we have within our culture. You see, we've so integrated our culture in Christianity that we've turned God into the fulfillment, all of the things that we're supposed to get in the American dream, 
Like, if we're really faithful, God will give us the house in the cul-de-sac with the white picket fence. We'll have a nice SUV. We'll have 2.3 children. Like, God is there to give us all of those things. But it is a radical notion to pray on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done, not my own. And so often we're raised with this idea, especially if any of you grew up in certain charismatic or Pentecostal circles where there's this word of faith or name it and claim it theology that says prayer is about controlling the outcomes of your life. It's a, it's a divine entitlement. Well, I'm God's special gift to the earth, so I, he, he's got to give me whatever I deserve, whatever I want, because I'm his child. And it's this kind of petulant theology that we're just trying to control the outcomes of our life rather than submitting ourselves to God faithfully and saying, your will be done. And what happens when we pray, your will be done, is that my desires begin to change. It says in the Psalms, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. What is it that God gives you when you delight in him? Desires. Because maybe the desires you had before you delighted in the Lord weren't actually kingdom desires. But as you worship him, we become what we worship. And so our desires actually shift and we begin to desire what it is that God wants. I heard a wonderful interview this week with Sarah Bessie, who's a writer that many of you will be familiar with. And she said that she once received a phone call from uh, her son's teacher. He's like five years old. And they said, she said, uh, I need you to come in. I want to show you something that Joey made in class. And she's like, oh, no. Maybe some of your parents, you've gotten that call. And you're like, is this a good thing or what is this? And the, the task was that they were to... Uh, they were to make a drawing that represents what prayer is. And so a lot of these little five-year-old kids, they, like, they drew like, oh, you know, we pray around the table before a meal or the pastor prays up on stage or, you know, these kinds of things that five-year-olds would think. And then she showed Sarah Joey's drawing and it was him sitting in one chair and it was Jesus sitting in another chair and they had little word bubbles and the word bubbles just said, I love you. And underneath it, it just said, we just keep doing this forever. What? Are you kidding me at five years old? He goes, yeah, prayer is just me and Jesus telling us we love each other forever and ever and ever. And I'm like, what, am I, what have I been doing for 37 years that this kid gets it? And that's that kind of love, that back and forth devotion that begins to shape us to know what it is that we desire. Thirdly, faithfully fasting purges us of our fullness so we can continue to trust God as our provider. Another result of this consumerist, individualistic society that we live in is that we feel like we need to gobble things up in order to fill ourselves, but we're never entirely full, so it's always just a little bit more than it was before, and a little bit more. This is what it, how addiction operates. It's just like, I just need a little bit more of that thing that's trying to fill us. And we do it with food, we do it experiences, we do it with relationships. You know, there's all sorts of things that we can be addicted to. But we're in this season of Lent where Lent is about purging ourselves, emptying ourselves in order to create space for God to begin to move and to speak. One of the, the in the devotional that we created, the, one of the reflections this week was from Thomas Merton, who was a Trappist monk living in Kentucky in the 1950s and 60s. And he said, the greatest need of our time is to clear out the enormous mass of mental and emotional rubbish that clutters our minds and makes all political and social life a mass illness. Can I get an amen? Are we preaching? Without this house cleaning, we cannot begin to see. Do you realize that all of that stuff 
you can't see. You're so engorged on it that you can't see clearly. Unless we can see, we cannot think. And so what do we do? We fast. We create space in our lives where we put aside our creature comforts in order to allow God to reorient us to what truly matters and to allow him to be our provider. And I think this is what's so radical about having a practice-based faith, as Jesus is calling us to, is that none of these realities about the heart of the Father we will get until we do them. You can't get it first, okay? You can't, like, read all the books and listen to all the podcasts about giving, and then you're going to know how to give properly. That's not how it works, You don't get to figure it out and then do it. We only learn it by doing it. And as we do it, we come to understand something. Because guess what else works that way? Love. You can't be in love in the abstract. You can't, love is not an ideology. I have all of my, you know, ideological ducks in a row and I know all the right phrases and I read the right books and now I'm going to go and practice love. No, you learn love by doing And as you do, you come to understand. And so Jesus gives us this vision for the heart of the Father when we do these things. So he says, you have heard it said like this, but I'm telling you it's like this. He's taking us deeper beneath the surface of just our behavior modification to a revelation of what God is really like and allowing that revelation to to shape us, to transform us. But Jesus is also very wise to give us names for the way that we mishandle our own behavior. And so Justin, speaking last week, was talking about this love of enemies. And and Jesus has these categories, friends, neighbors, and enemies, right? These are categories that Jesus has that we begin to examine. Well, who do I consider a friend, and why are they a friend? When Jesus says, well, they're your friends, you know, the reward's obvious, like there's good friendship there. Neighbor, we get to pick and choose who we think is neighbor based on our likes and dislikes. I've even been thinking a lot about what John had shared with us a couple weeks ago about that with based on our preference. But enemy, you know, I think of enemy as anyone who calls me to question who I think that I am. And maybe that's because they're attacking me, but maybe it's because they just happen to be in my space and just kind of messes with my illusions of self. So my enemy might be the poor person that comes up to me in the street and asks me for money, and I go, oh, I'm just going to send it on drugs. You know, like that's, he's my enemy, not because of his posture, but because of my own. And so Jesus begins to give us these categories that unearth in us our biases, our prejudices, and these like deeper motivations for why we are or are not obedient. And so he gives us two more categories in this passage. He talks about the hypocrites and he talks about pagans. Now hypocrite we often think means someone says something and then they don't do it. And that's part and parcel of it. But the word hypocrite, it means someone who is play acting. So some, this is, this is the, the amazing subtlety of, of hypocrite as a category. It's when we do the right thing for the wrong reason, right? This is what we see in giving and fasting. You're doing what, you're being obedient, you're doing the, the right thing. You're giving away your money, your resources, you're, you're purging, but you're doing it for the wrong reason because hypocrites had long given up on this idea of discovering the heart of the Father through obedience, And that desire for for intimacy to be seen, to be known, that all of us have, they took that off of God and they began to place it on other people. So when I give, I'm going to do it out on the street so everyone can see me. And this is why Jesus says, they've already received their reward. 
People are giving them the adulation that they desire. And we're so motivated by seeing, being seen by other people as doing the right thing. And so being a hypocrite is not saying, just saying one thing and doing another. It's when we do the right thing for the wrong reasons. And when it comes to prayer, Jesus says, don't be like the pagans who keep on babbling because they think by their many words, God's going to hear them. Because what do pagans believe about God? God is somewhere up there on top of a mountain. He's not particularly bothered by us. And we have to do the rain dance. And if we have the right amount of words, or we do the words in the right order, then maybe we'll get God to pay attention to us. How many pagans are in the Christian church today? So many. And if hypocrites have given up on the idea that God sees us and knows us, pagans don't believe that God is as good as he sounds. And so they're going to grasp at anything they can in order to get somebody to pay attention. I think when we look at those two categories, hypocrites and pagans, it begins to reveal to us there's something deeper about our motivations when we are called to be obedient, why we do religious things or why we don't do religious things. And so we're going to pause here, and we're going to, we're going to just practice something. We are a practice-based faith, so we're going to practice some reflection. Um, underneath your seat, there's a little half sheet of paper, and it's got these three questions on it. Why do I give? Why do I pray? And why do I empty space for God to dwell? And I also added in there, why do I not give? Why do I not pray? And why do I not uh, empty space for God to dwell? And we're just going to take a couple minutes, and I want you just to come before the Lord and just honestly reflect on these three commandments that Jesus has given us. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to be very, pay close attention to your own heart. Because guess what? 50% of you are going to feel shame. I'm just going to go ahead and warn you right now. Because you see the word not. And shame is a valid emotion that is there to tell you something about your expectations. And God is not a God who tells us we're not supposed to feel shame. He's a God who says, when you feel shame, come to me and we'll deal with it. Now, 50% of you are going to feel pride. Because you think that you're so generous. And you think that you've got a powerful, you're a power prayer warrior. And you've got to listen to that. What is pride telling you about your own posture? That you think you've already arrived you think you've got it. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to give you some, some time to just process with the Lord, but listen to your own heart as we're doing that. So let's pray, and we'll get into this. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. God, we know that you are not a God of shame, but nor are you a God of pride. But you help us to read our own emotions, to check our own expectations, our own motivations. So Holy Spirit, would you begin to speak to each one of us right now in this moment? about where we're at, so that we can move forward in understanding the commands that you have given us with greater faithfulness. Spend some time in prayer.
can feel, feel free to continue writing. But I just wanted to create a little bit of space for you to start that conversation with the Lord. Now, a lot of times it's these kinds of moments. Again, because we're so sensitive to shame that we want to rush in and kind of give the outs. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about it in a little bit, like God's heart and why he tells us to do things. But I'm not going to go there. You're going to have to work that one out, okay? I'm serious. Like, you've got you've to come before the Lord when it comes to that shame and understand his heart and what it is that he's asking you to do because God is not a God that invites shame, but he does speak to us profoundly through it. So let's look at those two categories, hypocrites and pagans. So first, when we do the right thing for the wrong reason. How many of you grew up in church? How many, are there any pastor's kids out there? It just... It, <laughs> you know okay maybe there's a couple of us or missionaries kids or whatever so a lot of us who grew up in church uh this is probably talking to us okay and i this again this was like super convicting to me when i was thinking about it because i like doing church i really do i enjoy sundays and i like singing and i like reading the word and i like coming to the table and i like prayer i like all of these things but it's very easy for me to believe that, well, it's just my behaviors that justify me, that make me a good little Christian boy. And I had to kind of go deeper into this in my own story. Like, why do I do these things or not do these things? And why do I give myself an out? Or what, you know, how do I justify myself in these things? And this is one of the things that I really realized um, with this idea of, of being hypocritical, that religion will either bind us together or tear us apart but it has more to do with our own posture than the practice itself. So a lot of times, because we don't do the interior self-reflective work, we actually cast the blame outward on institutions and systems and the rules that we think that we're called to live because we don't want to contend with the fact that maybe it's actually our, our posture and our attitude towards doing the things that God's called us to do that's actually misaligned. So what do I mean by religion? Some of you, maybe that word is very triggering. Religion is simply the space in which I explore and express my faith. That's what religion is, okay? There's, there's been a movement recently of like, Jesus wants relationship, not religion. Jesus was a very religious person. He had his, he had his prayer rhythms as a good Jew. He went to synagogue every week faithfully. He read the scriptures. He prayed a lot. He practiced generosity. He was a religious person because Jesus recognized that all of those religious things that he was called to do were keeping him in communion with the Father, that religion is actually the structure of our relationship. And if you think about that in human terms, like the relationships you have with other people, if you don't practice having a relationship with somebody, setting up regular rhythms of connection, doing activities together, this idea that you, you have a relationship is kind of, it's not real. It's in the abstract. We think about friends, but it's somebody that you haven't really talked to in six months or whatever it might be. And so the question becomes, if that, we're all, and we're all religious, by the way. <laughs> we all have structures that we explore and express the things that we say that we believe. We all have actions, things that we do. It becomes a question of if it's good religion or bad religion in terms of where it's leading us and what's going on within our heart. And I think that bad religion is when we try to earn favor or justify ourselves. That's bad religion. 
you know, kind of going back, the whole reason for the Reformation was because in the church, it was just called the church at that point, and then it, we knew it as the Catholic Church. It was like, well, if you really, you know, you want to get out of, uh, out of hell, like pay these things called indulgences, and there's a certain pay grade that you can make that you can get out of jail for free. This is why our whole bail bond system in this country, we call it justice, and you're like, give me a break. So you can pay to get out of jail? Mm, that doesn't sound like justice. Whole other topic. Um, and in the Reformation, they rightly recognize, like, no, 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 we don't perform and do stuff in order to earn God's favor. That's bad religion. And, but bad religion is also when we participate in practices that actively hurt other people, okay? Now, I had written in this, and I don't know if this is true. Go and figure out what this means. Maybe it's not. I don't think that institutions and as, as an abstract hurt people. And I don't even think ideas as an abstract hurt people. People hurt people right? So if you, people have been hurt by the church, what do you mean? You've been hurt by people within the church. And those people probably believed poisonous ideas about God and, and others. But at the end of the day, we have been hurt by people. And I think that that's really important that we recognize when we're talking about religion. And sometimes our ideologies, the things that we say that we believe so that we can sleep at night, actually prevent us from honestly examining what our actions say about what we really believe. And it prov- our, our beliefs prevent us from accepting personal responsibility. I was thinking through that through a lot of things, like a lot of, especially a lot of justice issues today. And I was thinking about like abortion. Like I consider myself someone who's very pro-life. But if my posture of pro-lifeness is to vote once every four years, can I really say that I'm passionate about it? If that's the end of the conversation, if that's it, if that's all I'm doing to advocate for the unborn, this is where ideology starts to take over. I do something once and then I convince myself that I'm the kind of person who cares. Or what about racism? How many of you were just worked up over the summer and you wanted, you wanted to learn to be anti-racist and you began to follow some accounts on Instagram that were sharing some truths and you were like, wow, this is really amazing. And, and maybe you read a book but what have we done since? Do we, t- do we just check off the box to say we're the kind of people that care about dismantling racism, but we haven't really done anything in the past six months? Or do we have a posture of heart that is always seeking creative ways to administer the kingdom in places of injustice? If I'm truly pro-life, am I always looking for ways to change the conversation? Another tangent we'll do another day. I think pro-life, pro-choice is the stupidest binary that prevents us from actually getting to talk to each other because we're not talking about what really matters and we're certainly not talking out of a scriptural view of God. But if I just say that I believe these things but it comes down to voting once every four years or it just comes about following Instagram profiles, what am I, do I really believe it? And this is where we say the things that we believe in order to protect ourselves from honestly examining the, the material way in which we live our lives day by day. And it's important that we pause and we reflect, why do I do these religious things? Why do I not? Where am I trying to convince myself something about myself that is not true? What do I hope is going to happen because of my activity? If I'm generous, if I'm a regular church attendee? Do I think that I'm earning favor in God's eyes? Or are these things, actions I participate in because I, I've, 
allowed the heart of the Father to wash over me. And I can't help over time to do the things that he's called me to do. Because I believe that obedience is actually the path to freedom. So if that's hypocrite, the second category of pagan is when we are resistant to obey. So it's not about doing the right things for the wrong reasons. It's about not doing these things at all. And often we're afraid to do what Jesus commands us because we've either been disappointed by other people or by God. I think this is why we're so often resistant. Again, this is where that bad religion template that many of us have in our own stories has caused us to go, well, I, I've seen it done wrong in my church of origin, in my family of origin, whatever it might be. And so I'm not going to be that kind of person. And I'm not just going to, you know, I hear it a lot of times like, well, we're, I don't want to be legalistic. Okay, that's fine. But the opposite of legalism is not just freewheeling, follow your emotions. It's something deeper that has a little bit more integrity to it. Justin was with us last week in our leadership workshop on Friday before he spoke to us on Sunday. And he said, if we don't grieve our disappointments, we can't come to terms with the underlying expectations. Let me say that again. If we don't grieve our disappointments, we can't come to terms with the underlying expectations. We always, we're always walking around with expectations. We have expectations of other people. We have expectations of this community. We have expectations of God. And when those expectations are not fulfilled, but we just keep moving on as if things are fine, we never come to terms with those expectations and if they were justified or not. And what happens then when we've been wounded, and I, I actually want to elevate, I think disappointment is profound. We, we tend to minimize disappointment. We'd be like, oh, Bummer, that thing didn't work out. Oh, well, move on. I think disappointment is a profound wound to the soul that when we're disappointed by other people, by the faith community, by God, and we don't come to terms with those expectations, we can never read those things rightly. And so we begin to dispossess ourselves of obedience to Jesus because things didn't work. And that's so often how religion is portrayed to us. Do these things and then you're going to live this kind of life. And it works until it doesn't. Until you, you hit a wall in your faith. And all of a sudden it doesn't, maybe, is God listening to me? I'm not sure. These things that I say that I believe, they don't really seem to make sense. And so many of us have a religious inheritance that says when you hit a wall you have two options. You sing some songs about Jesus and you listen to a guy talk about him. And that's it because the American church has been so belief-oriented without any thorough practice. And you and I, we've been hurt by the expectations that we've had, whether they're justified or not. Sometimes those expectations have been unrealistic. Again, because we were sold a line about who God is and what he's going to do for us, and then he doesn't, and then we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have unhealthy expectations. Or maybe we have reasonable expectations and it didn't work. I think this is especially true in human relationship. When we have expectations that we're going to be these kinds of people for one another, we're going to reveal Jesus to one another, and it doesn't happen. And people abandon us or people hurt us or whatever it might be when we most needed them. But we never grieve those disappointments and, and look at the expectations underneath them. So we just keep moving on as if everything is fine. Look at the past year in the pandemic. Over 500,000 dead? How many of us have paused to grieve this? Say, this isn't okay? 
No, because we're so forward focused, we have to keep moving, keep going. We're like sharks, you know? It's like if sharks stop swimming, they die. And we believe that that's true about us as Christians and as Americans as well. And so what happens when we're disappointed? When we had expectations of God, of other people, and it didn't happen? We think that freedom is about us taking back our choice taking back our right to define ourselves and become our own filter for what we do and do not do. Because any expectations that God has of us is oppression. Any expectations that other people have of me is oppression. And so I want to live a life, and this is the kind of thing we hear in our culture, like I'm going to be my truest self, and I'm not going to let anybody, like anybody that's getting in the way of me and my happiness and my right to define, like that, I'm casting all of that off because I've been disappointed before. Because the expectations, like the things that I've been called to do have hurt me. And so the answer is for me to get rid of all that stuff, to become my own God, and then I'm going to be happy. But that's not how life works. I think 99% of this deconstructionist movement that we see within the church, especially among millennial and Gen Z Christians, is an emotional response to disappointment and not because people have logically examined the tenets of our faith. But we don't know how to grieve our disappointments when it comes to faith and religion. And so what do we do? We make it an intellectual exercise. We start to disassemble like this idea you know, that the, the Bible is divinely inspired or that Jesus wasn't really who these people said. We make it about something out there instead of coming to terms with the fact that we've been hurt, that we're disappointed, that it's painful to be a human being. And we need to reclaim a practice-based faith that takes us deep within ourselves to see what's actually going on there that is an emotional response to life, not a logical one. Because we can never grow and we can't relate to other people if we don't accurately read our own stories. Because until you and I are able to read our stories of profound disappointment and hurt and pain, we're just gonna continue to project that outwards. And it's other people's fault and it's other systems and it's all of this other stuff. And we begin to import these narratives that tell us how we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to feel. And guess what, those things are going to disappoint us too. But you can't do that work alone. And you can't do that work on the internet that has to be done in community. It has to be done with good guides who know how to help you to, to touch base on your own story. And I think what's so powerful in this is that God bears our unhealthy expectations of him because he knows that at least it brings us a little bit closer to him. When God disappoints us, because he didn't give us what we wanted, he didn't show up for us when we needed him to, I think God bears that this is why the cross is the center of our faith, because God bears all of the unhealthy expectations of humankind. But through that, he begins to minister to us if we open up our stories, and he begins to reveal to us what's going on inside of us. So how do we uncover and bring healing to our disappointments? Perhaps another way to ask this, can you believe that the expectations for allegiance God places on you may be the path to freedom? What if it's actually by living the way that God has called you to live, accepting the parameters, accepting the limitations? Because guess what? You already have limitations. You're a human being. And those limitations are not a liability. They're a gift. 
because you turn to God and you ask him to lead you? What if the things that Jesus is commanding us to do actually lead us to greater freedom, which is I am now finally free to be who God has called me to be? And it's by doing that I learn and I eventually I get it. What if we were no longer afraid of the words obedience and commandment because we trusted the one who's commanding us and we know his heart is for us? I think what's so beautiful in this that the commands of Jesus give us a vision for who we are to become that actually as human beings our most natural state is to be people who give, people who are generous. It's to be people that are so in line with the Father that we allow heaven to come to earth through us, through our actions. We're people that there is no difference between what we say we believe and how we act because we've done the work. It's called discipleship. We follow Jesus into that. You know, sometimes we look at these OGs in the faith these men and women, these titans that just live it out. There was a, um, when I was in Nashville, we had like a church father and he was this Canadian Celtic guy, giant beard, long, crazy hair. And he'd come up and he'd go, how are you, brother? And you just, you just melt because you're in the presence. You know what I mean? It's like the Shekinah just washed over you. And it's people like that. We don't look at them and question whether or not we need more people like that in the world. We just wish there were more people like that. But guess what? It's because he's done the work over decades of obedience to be transformed by the heart of the Father, to look more and more like Jesus every day and recognizing that obeying is not a limitation of our freedom. It is the pathway to it. So I want to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to approach the table. We're going to do another practice, this thing that we don't get it until we do it. It's important that you recognize that God is not an arbiter of lines in the sand, constantly measuring our obedience, okay? He's not going, well, did Jenna get it right today or not? Like, what grade, how many demerits is she going to get? That's not how this works. God is a very forgiving God. God has far higher expectations of you than you're comfortable with. But he's also far more accommodating than maybe the person next to you is comfortable with in your life. But it's this passionate beckoning to draw us close and to let ourselves be transformed. This is what happens when we come to the table. It's one of my favorite sacred acts, sacraments that we have within the church, something that Jesus commanded us to. It wasn't a suggestion, it was a command. But listen, this is what Paul writes about what Jesus said to him that he is passing on to us. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you and I, brothers and sisters, we do so that we might know. And the more we do, the more we experience. And the more we experience, the more we are transformed. And the more we are transformed, the more we are set free. So I'm going to pray. I want you to reach underneath your chair and, and, and bring out your little cup. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the commands that you give us through King Jesus. 
God, we want to be an allegiant people that more and more, day by day, through obediently living your way, we're having deeper revelations of your heart for all of humanity. We're being transformed to look more like him and finding freedom in that. And we recognize the beautiful and monumental task we've been given in in furthering your kingdom through our actions. God, would you bring down those dividing walls between what we say that we believe and how we live our lives? Not in a way that it brings us shame, but that we honestly look at the deeper realities within us. And we do strive to be faithful, to give ourselves over to you, and to see what you've called us to be in this world. So bless us, Lord, as we come to your table. We give your spirit permission to move in and through us during worship, to continue to reveal to us what's deep down inside of us. May all these things be unto your glory in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.